All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Okay, you guys, on the line, I've got the great Matthew Ho. And uh, as you know, he was the great whistleblower from before the Afghan surge. Tried to stop it his very best, he did, uh, back in 2009. And he's been a great anti-war guy ever since then. Uh, former Marine and with State Department at the time, he's blowing the whistle. And here he is writing for antiwar.com. Boy, that makes me proud. This one's called, What the First Week of War with Iran Could Look Like When Logic and Proportion Have Fallen Sloppy Dead is the subhead there. Uh, welcome to the show, Matthew. How you doing, man? Good, Scott. How you doing, man? Thanks Real for good. having me on. Now, here's the thing. At the time we're recording this on Thursday in the afternoon, they haven't started the bombing campaign yet. However, there's been a couple of leaks, one to the uh, NBC News, and I forgot the second one, but whatever. They both say the same thing, and we got the write-up at the top antiwar.com from Dave DeCamp today. I already talked with him about it. That the plan is they're going to hit pro-Iranian and or Iranian, they claim, targets in Iraq and I guess in Syria and in Yemen. And possibly hit Navy targets, although I don't know if they're going to go that far, but maybe they're going to hit some Navy targets in the Gulf. And then the plan is that I get, and, and this is going to last at least a week or so or something, and that the Iraqi militias and the Iraqi government, they're going to sit there and take it. I don't know who they plan on bombing in Syria, but whoever they bomb in Syria and whoever they bomb in Yemen... They're all going to sit there and take it. And Ayatollah, even if they hit his Navy, is going to know better than to escalate in response because then things could get really ugly. And we all know that the Ayatollah doesn't want to fight. He knows how bad America could hurt his country if it came down to it. And we know that the Americans know how tough it would be to take on Iran. So it looks like this is almost a political game, right? Like when Trump was shooting missiles at Syria over fake sarin attacks. They're like, well, okay, Ayatollah, we're going to do this, and then you do that, and then we're going to leave it at that. And they're trying to, like, a little bit of ground rules ahead of time thing and hope that right. they can contain it like that. But I right. wonder how worried you are that maybe that could be a problem and get out of control. Very worried because at some point your luck runs out on that. Uh, at some point, uh, something can can be pushed too far, or the political pressures that are felt become such that you have the, the response, the 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 tit for the tat, becomes such a thing that the tat that's in relation to the tit, so to speak, right, is of 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 such a blow that the, then the political pressures inside require, you know, inside the countries, whether it's the United States or Iran, uh, require uh, a, a, a response that takes you into a level of warfare that ostensibly everybody didn't want. 
Right. Right. I think I think it's it's safe to say the Biden White House does not want a war with Iran. Right. I think it's safe to say, as you said, the Iranian government doesn't want a war with Iran. And I think they're all hoping that this looks like January 2020 again, where uh, the United States kills uh, Qasem Soleimani. The Iranians launch a bunch of uh, missiles at Al-Assad Air Base. Uh, nobody gets killed uh, and everyone can can then back off. Uh, you know, that's that's the best case. Uh, and, you know, the, the concern, though, is that there's so many other variables in here. There's so many other groups involved. The political pressure on the White House by the Republicans and by some, you know, uh, some members of the Democratic Party probably very quietly as well, because there is a, a you know, a, a, a contingent within, within Democratic Party that, you know, being led by the nose by AIPAC. Uh, is very, very much in favor of some type of regime change in Iran, right? So maybe there's that type of pressure going on as well. But the danger is that uh, whatever Joe Biden does, if it's not enough, there's a political cost to him, right? right? So he's got to deal with not just Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton and the others going on Meet the Press and saying, this guy's weak, he's getting our troops killed, he's not willing to stand up for these dead soldiers and their families, but you've got this presidential campaign where, you know, Joe Biden is behind. And Donald Trump, the first thing that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth after three soldiers are killed in Jordan is, if I was president, that wouldn't have happened. You know, and so does that type of political pressure make it so that, OK, this what's being leaked about, we're just going to limit it to hitting these uh, Iraqi uh, groups that are alive with Iran in Iraq, and then we're gonna we're gonna try and kill some uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps officers that are in Syria, and maybe we'll 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 hit a, a an Iranian frigate, and that'll be it. You know, is that gonna be enough, right? Or do they have to do it to such a level that okay, this is greater than anything we've done before? But then that does does that then cause the Iranians to have to have a response? you know, greater than, say, what their response to the Soleimani assassinations was, which I think yeah. we all were very relieved to see that their response was so uh, was so was so uh, uh, held back that they were so, you know, there's a lot of restraint in how the Iranians responded to that. Yeah. So and then, of course, the fear is that if what the Americans do, whether in the initial strikes or secondary strikes, a response to Iran's response to our response is, does that then start to put fear in the Iranians that will hang on? Are the Americans serious? Everything we've heard for 45 years from the Americans about getting rid of us, about how we are the greatest threat to the civilized world, about the, the evils of the mullahs of Tehran, right? I mean, all that stuff, all the, the ghost of John McCain is singing bomb, bomb Iran. You know, is, is that does that start making the Iranians think that, OK, is this really it? Are they really going to go for it? We know what the White House is saying. We know what they kind of feel. But what matters is what is the Iranian perception? And do they then go into one survival mode, particularly if they feel that their political leadership is now in danger? But then also, too, are they getting to the point where they feel like, is this not just a political decapitation, but a military decapitation? Are they trying to knock out our ability to actually repel some type of very serious uh, and, and, and regime change oriented military strike by the United States. Should, so do we need to be one step ahead and, you know, basically kind of use it or lose it and go full bore on this? 
And do we need to launch strikes at their air bases in Qatar and in UAE and, and Prince Sultan Air Base and in Saudi Arabia and, and so forth? And then you can so you can see very quickly how this becomes this full scale war that everybody is saying, no, we don't want. But, you know, it was, Scott, if we, we teleport back, we build that time machine and go back, you know, 100 years to 1914, uh, you know, most of those folks were saying, uh, we don't want this war. We don't want this war, you know, even as there was all the precursors. I was just reminded of all the wars in the Balkans that occurred prior to 1914. I mean, so the, the, the analogy here, how analogous this is to, you know, so, uh, you know, that that's the danger we're at, that every, despite what everyone's saying about how they're going to control this and how it's going to be just this, this very well-managed series of strikes that put the fear of God in the Iranians and it'll cause their, uh, uh, the, the militias that are allied with them to not step out of bounds any longer. And Joe Biden, this, this will shut Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton up. You know, how many, you know, you don't have to be an expert in military history to know that war is not controllable, that this is not something you can manage, that, you know, in, you know, the inevitability of it getting out of control is very often what defines war. And, you know, so that that's that's, I think, what, what, what a lot of us are very afraid of as we as we wait to see what happens. Yeah. Well, and what you're describing here with this spiral, this tit for tat thing, I mean, we're already halfway into it, right? This has been going on for months with mm -hmm. American strikes back and forth with these Shiite militias in Iraq and in Syria. It's just that this was the first time they actually killed some guys. They had wounded quite a few in the past, and there have been some real near misses and this kind of thing. And, and it, they had killed a couple of contractors going back a few years. They've killed about two, two or three American contractors, mm -hmm. uh, not in the last several months, but going back to, say, 2019 or so. Yeah, yeah, in the in the previous iteration of this, right. which was also instigated by the Israelis, by the way. Remember, they were doing strikes into Iraq, which was what helped kick that thing off. And yeah. or was it into Syria? I think it was into both. Syria. But they uh, I mean, but but I think the point is we can keep talking about this like this, Scott, right? In the sense of like and then before that and then before yeah. that. Well, that's the problem that. on both sides. And right? eventually you identified it, man, is this is uh, to go back to Justin Romando's old theory of libertarian realism that all foreign policy is based in domestic politics. Right. And so that's right. if Biden leaves this thing unfinished, well, that doesn't look good. But those same kind of incentives to one degree or another and with different wrinkles in them apply inside Iran as well. And we all know the Ayatollah Khamenei is in charge, but we don't know who all is nipping at his heels and to what degree... You know, his meekness overall and his attitude toward the United States, you know, could really undermine him and possibly weaken his government, especially in a time when, for example, if we have a week worth of airstrikes against Iran's closest allies in Iraq, America's closest allies in Iraq, by the way, well, other than the Kurds, but the same guys that you fought Iraq War II to put in power there back 10 years, right. 20 years ago. <laughs> almost said 10, back 20 years ago, and, and helped, uh, not you, but the rest of them helped uh, to defeat ISIS 10 years ago, um, nine and a half. Uh, those same guys, uh, if, if they start bombing them, that could really change the incentive structure of domestic politics inside Iran about, are you just going to let them get away with this? And for that matter, in Baghdad, that right. these are supposedly our friends, the Americans, and 
and we have guys. We have what five thousand guys stationed. I think almost entirely in Kurdistan. I don't know if we have any in Shiistan right now in the Shiite parts of Iraq. But if did anybody wonder what happens if the Americans left in Iraq? get attacked by the Iraqi government and their allied or even just the militias without the army, but even especially with the army. And do they really think they're immune from that? Because going back yeah. 20 years in Iraq war two, the leaders of the Supreme Islamic council who are now the government and Muqtada al-Sadr, who's the most powerful Shiite leader outside of government. They had all promised that if you guys go to war with Iran, we'll kill you. You might be putting us in power, but that doesn't mean that we won't shoot you in the back. So don't try it, pal. So if they really, this would be the biggest bombing campaign against the Shiite government that W. Bush put in power there in 03, in 04 and 05. This whole time, there have been limited strikes against Khatib Hezbollah here, there, one in Baghdad. But they're talking about a real ass bombing campaign against our Iraqi allies. So that could yeah. change everything over there. You know, I'm you know, this conversation, not not what you're what you and I, but the general conversation about this policy, about the U.S. policy in the Middle East, and particularly, say, the Iraq policy. It's it's so it's so convoluted. It's like, you know, watching kids go through a playground. Right. You know, climbing through the tubes and over the bars and across the rings and, you know, contorting themselves to get through this kind of obstacle. It, it really, I mean, like there's, there's no straight lines here at all. And there's also, just to get back to the point you were making earlier, there's such personal memory, such personal history, such personal interest in this for all of us, whether we realize it or not. I mean, one of my first memories uh, is, you know, as a six, seven-year-old kid is the hostage crisis in Iran. You know, and that the hostages and I grew up in New York and the hostages came back and from then to West Point. Uh, you know, that's where they brought the hostages to in 1980. And like that wasn't far from my home. So like the big deal of how that was and everyone's tying yellow ribbons around the trees. And then one of the next memories I have, uh, you know, a few years later is the uh, uh, embassy and then particularly the, the barracks bombing in Beirut in 1983 done by those evil Iranians. So, you know, my my young mind, my, my seven year old, 10 year old mind was was just uh, informed about how the Iranians are evil. Right. And that's just it's not like the script on that from our media has changed much, you know, or from our political leaders have changed much over the last uh, 40 years or so. And the Iranians have the same type of of of, uh, you know, uh, uh, cultural and historical memories and legacies and even more so because we were the ones who kept the the shah in power that police state we're the ones who you know it's jimmy carter who gave the thumbs up to the iranians to launch that brutal horrible eight-year war you know i mean and then sanctions and so forth and so on um you know, the, 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 all this impacts people. You, you can't, I mean, none of this is clinical. None of this is just academic. So, you know, this idea that uh, is this the culminating point? At yeah. some point, this this process has to reach its culmination. Yeah. And is it now? Hey, you guys, did you know that I don't just write books? I publish them. Well, the Institute does, and I'm the director. So, yeah, 13 of them now, including my four. We published five more in 2023. Lori Calhoun and Tom Woods' books about the COVID regime, Joe Solis Mullen on the fake China threat, Jim Bovard's latest, Last Rights, 
and our managing editor, Keith Knight's Domestic Imperialism. And we've got more great titles coming in 2024. Check them out at libertarianinstitute.org books and help support our anti-government efforts at libertarianinstitute.org donate. And thank you. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. And you by know, the way, that, I have to point out, it goes without saying, but it should go said that noticeably you left out Al-Qaeda's entire war against the United States there because that's not Iran, that's right? right? It was not Hezbollah what knocked our towers down or even killed the Kobar Towers. But you right. know what's it's interesting? I had never read John Kiriakou's book until recently. And John mm-hmm. wrote this book in 2009. He had a and I and I didn't realize that it was that book was that old. But I when I was reading it and there's a foreword from Bruce Rydell in it. It's like, why the heck is Bruce Rydell writing a foreword for John Kiriakou? That's that point. You, 2009, he's a bit of a hawk so. for people who don't know. Rydell is he's good on Yemen, but he's been very hawkish. He recommended the surge in Afghanistan that you tried to stop, for example. Go ahead. Right. But even by by 2009, I think, Scott, it was clear. It had been clear for many years. Hezbollah did not do the Kobar Towers bombing, correct? Yeah. And they try to to say that it's Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah, which is, I guess, does exist. But- it was so clear, and and this is, you know, Gareth Porter has like a four or five part story about this. Michael Scheuer, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, also is absolutely certain about this. And and in fact, there's a great piece by old, what's his name in the Village Voice? Um, Nat Hentoff. I think it was, no, was it, it well, I'm sorry, it wasn't Hentoff. I'm so sorry. It's, it's about um, Rudy Giuliani and the terror chic. Or something. It's about how Giuliani was doing private security services for Sheikh Althani in Qatar. And how, if I had this right, it's been a long time since I read this. So I'm pretty sure in, 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 in Qatar there. And then the Kobar Towers was just on the other side of the fence. And that yeah. was where they had launched the attack from. And that it was uh, bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who had done it. And their guys who had done it. And that then uh, Althani had helped them escape. When the FBI came hunting for him, apparently they sent the Waco killers, the hostage rescue team, to grab him. And the uh, Althani made them wait overnight and let bin Laden and, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed get away. And they were actually apparently going to try to grab him for that. And I interviewed a CIA lady one time named Storer, Cynthia Storer. And she insisted to me that, well, it was Al-Qaeda and it was Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah, both working together who did it. But she can't explain to me how she knows that, but she swears that is true. But right. but Gareth Porter debunked that, uh, I thought, quite thoroughly. And, you know, there's also a, a front line, PBS front line, all about John O'Neill, the man who could, the man who knew, I think it's called, who he was the FBI head of counterterrorism. Yeah. And... 
when they talk about the Kobar Towers part of that, they talk about how the Saudis had spun up this whole tale and that Louis Free bought it. And that then on the plane on the way home, O'Neill told Louis Free that, come on, you don't believe what they're saying about all this Hezbollah stuff, right? They're blowing smoke up your ass, chief. And then Louis Free, who was like this Opus Dei, extremely conservative Catholic, pretended to be so offended at the use of the word ass that he wouldn't listen to John O'Neill about this weird Al-Qaeda stuff anymore. And if the Saudis wanted to blame it on the Iranians... <laughs> Then they blame it on the Iranians. But meanwhile, who was it that got killed? It was American airmen yep. in floor, enforcing the no-fly zone. Right. So it, it, it was it, the it, most it, important thing in the world that the truth had been portrayed to the American people of what happened there and what was behind this. Right. That you have forget Iran attacking from across the Gulf for no reason. This right. was the Bin Ladenites attacking a very important direct and symbolic target for the very important reason reason of getting it through your dad's head then that boy, we better get our troops out of Saudi Arabia. Where, I mean, hell, we can bomb Iraq from the Gulf. Why do we have to have bases in Saudi to bomb them? Just so the Air Force can share with the Navy on the bombing runs? Let's just have the Navy bomb them then, you know? And anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about it is that it shows, like, as you're just saying there, that you have people like Bruce Whitehill who, who, will, who know what happened, and they still lie about it. They still blame Iran, even though... You had what 18, 19 American service members, most of them kids yeah. killed. Yeah, right. I mean, they're still they're willing to I mean, it's obsession with Iran. And you go back to is it 2017 that Michael Vickers wrote that op-ed in the Washington Post about how the US missed the best chance to de, you know, to 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 weaken Iran with the Syrian civil war. I, I Vickers was the uh he ran the special operations and low intensity conflict uh, department for the Pentagon under Obama. Mm -hmm. So he would have been he was the guy in charge of yeah. that war. And was later. Ways. Yeah, he was deputy secretary of defense for intelligence. So he got promoted. Yeah. OK, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he uh, he writes his op-ed after the Obama administration's out in The Washington Post saying how the, the Syrian civil war. This was our best opportunity to get Iran, basically. Yep. Yeah. Right. We're going to this half million people killed there had nothing to do with Syria. It was about Iran. I mean, this obsession with Iran and you see it, too. I mean, Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, after January 6th, she writes this op ed saying, I thought it was the Iranians who were attacking this building. Right. I mean, so where your the, head the, would the, have the, to be the, at to think that Jesus so the obsession, the obsession, right, <laughs> with Iran that has, I mean, so, and then, then I you get to the next stage where, okay, who's making these decisions? And, well, okay, it's coming down to Jake Sullivan, uh, most likely. Yeah. What's Jake Sullivan? Jake Sullivan's a politician. So he is not looking at this from a strategic point of view. He's looking at this from a political point of view. And politics always trumps strategic anyway. You got tactical, yeah. operational, strategic, political, right? Yeah. And so that's the concern. Like these people saying, well, we do need to do a little more than we should because it'll make us look tougher, you know, and there's going to have plenty of people within D.C. who agree with them because, again, this Iran obsession, this mania that yeah. exists. But your point, though, about what are these troops doing in Iraq and Syria, you had a great piece a few weeks ago, Scott, about how they're, they're bait, how they're basically a tripwire. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the ostensible reason for them being there is this counter-ISIS campaign. But what are they doing? They're fighting the guys who are, you know, they're, they're, they're 
fighting the guys who fought and defeated ISIS. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, and so the whole thing is, is, you know, there's, there's some more, the other part. Well, why are they in Syria? Well, one of the things is, you know, it stops this land bridge that connects Mm -hmm. Iran, Iraq and Syria. Land bridge is what idiots call a road. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. but it was this obsessive term, you know, that they used you know, 10 years ago. But, right. you know, this idea that we are going to stop the Iranians from coming across and connecting physically with their Syrian allies. I mean, this is obsession with Iran. But the point being, too, is that they are bait. And they, those those three three service members getting killed in Jordan did exact their deaths did exactly what many in Washington D.C. want to have happen. Yep. Put the president in a position where he has to launch a major attack. It can't be it can't be a handful of cruise missiles. Heck, it can't even look what we've been like we've been doing in Yemen. You know, with twelve or thirteen attacks, this has to involve B fifty twos and B twos and B ones. Mm. I mean, this has to be. I mean, this mm. has to be a real. You know, uh, uh, so yeah, the point though about those troops is I get into this, I get into this a little bit in my piece is what happens if the Iranians, as we were discussing, get into a survival mode, a use it or lose it mentality, or their obsession with us because they have their hawks, they have their hardliners as well. They've had their people who just not even an obsession, just forty five years of this, we've had enough. Now, now is the time to have it out with the Americans, like that type of of, of motivation, uh, and maybe a little bit more strategic thinking behind it. This is our way to force the Americans out of the, the region, ultimately. And then some political things too. I mean, they they have elections there as well. Nobody's going to get elected when their country is getting picked on, particularly by the Americans. You know, I mean, we've had enough. Who's going to stand up against these guys? So the idea being, they launch enough strikes against our air bases. Uh, in the region, in all those Gulf monarchies, where our air power is not able to provide the support to those garrisons we have in Syria and Iraq. And those garrisons we have in Syria and Iraq, that's what they're dependent upon, just yeah. like our, our small uh, combat outposts and, and, and FOBs and such that we had all throughout Afghanistan. You know, that's one of the reasons why the Afghan Taliban wouldn't mass and attack those small outposts because of our air power. Right. You know, I mean, they don't want to get they don't want to get massacred. You group up together and you know, you lump up together in a group and the Apaches and the A-10s and the B-1s are going to come in. Hey, let me ask you, know? you, man. I read that Hezbollah has tens of thousands of rockets and missiles. And then I just imagine that that means Iran has hundreds of thousands of rockets and missiles that well, can cross the, other, the Gulf. So, there. Yeah, Is that I mean, right? why wouldn't they? They've got enough that they're they're producing enough that they can give their surplus to do Russia. Do you know? Do you have any like special knowledge from when you were in the service of that they have at least X amount or anything like that that you can tell us? No, no, I, I don't know anything like that. But I would say just this: forty-five years of of, of the regime change pressure from the U.S. The, the the again the Iran-Iraq war, the assassinations, the sanctions, the bullying. I mean, the attacks. I mean, all those types of things. If people are just going to assume that the Iranians are not ready for a war with the U.S., I don't know what to tell you. I mean, they could yeah. be as incompetent as we are and not be as prepared as they should be. Yeah. But you want to you want to put your money on that, you know, no. so you have to go with the expectation that yeah. the, if Matt Ho can think about this. Right. You got to believe the Iranians who have fought and won wars. Right. I mean, they, 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 when we killed Qasem Soleimani, we killed arguably the best general in the world for this century. 
You know, name me a more successful, more competent, uh, more uh, 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 respected commander than Qasem Soleimani was throughout the entire world for the last 25 years. Well, we certainly don't on. have anyone who's going to make it into the top 10 of that list. You, you know? have to admit that a lot of his success was because he had George Bush and Barack Obama serving under him and oh, carrying absolutely. out his he, orders yeah. in Iraq, especially, you know. Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, if you got the American Air Force and the American, you know, carrier-based jets, uh, you know, behind you, that's going to help. Yeah. But, you know, and a look, lot I'm of always uh, maybe longtime listeners of this show are sick of this by now or whatever, but I got to assume that there's new people all the time. And it, I think it's so important what we're doing, harping on all this Sunni Shia stuff. I mean, I think people notice we don't sit here and talk about, well, what are the differences between the Sunnis and the Shiites? Well, who cares? Dude? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about America's actual enemies who shed American blood. They're the radical vanguard edge of the Sunni side of this thing. The Bin Ladenites hate us because we're too close to their governments. Right. Meanwhile, our government doesn't really care about that. Never mind the people in New York, the innocent civilians on the plains and in New York. They don't even care about their own guys who were killed at the Pentagon, Matthew. Because what they care about is they hate the Shiites more. Because one, more than anything, that's what Israel demands. But two, also, like you're saying, they're still not over the revolution of 79, where they declared yeah. independence from us. And then no. you hear them talk about Iraq War II. They act like Iran killed five or 600 Americans in Iraq War II when they just mean Iraqi Shiites did. They're just lying that Iran was behind that, as I demonstrate in the book with a little bit of your help, in fact, uh, citing you there. And But meanwhile... It was the Bin Ladenites who were the vanguard edge of the Sunni insurgency that killed 4,000 of our guys in Iraq War II. But they don't want to talk about that. They right. hate the Shiites more. Even though it was only because Petraeus attacked them that we were even fighting the Shiites at all in that stupid thing. I, I know a guy who was a, 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 tells a story about being, you know, he's a, a captain, I guess, in Sadr City in the summer of 2003. And this cleric comes in, wants to talk to the, the commander of the region. And they, they shun him. They tell him to go home and we're not going to talk to you, you know, uh, and it's Muqtada al-Sadr, right? I mean, like, there's stories like that. Yeah. We All of us have these stories, yeah. particularly if you I don't remember my source anymore, but there was one where it was like this cute little blonde cupcake daughter of a Republican donor who had been appointed to the provisional authority there, who was for some reason the aide to uh, uh, Viceroy Bremer. And he said to her, who's this Muqtada al-Sadr guy? And oh, she yeah. said, oh, he's just some minor cleric. In other words, I haven't bothered looking it up, and I don't know, but I just heard his name a couple times, so I'm just going to go ahead and bluff and tell you that he's not a big deal, when actually he's kind of the biggest deal out of anyone in the whole country. There's a reason they renamed Saddam City, Sadr City, the day the <laughs> statue came down. You know what I mean? Come on. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, in the inanity of this, it extends further because, you know, right now there are also people in D.C. who are excited about the prospects of this war because this would stop Iranian support to Russia. Right. So we've got to bomb Iran to hurt Russia. I mean, so you just have this 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 type of thinking that is just, uh, you know, I'm struggling to find the right words here because it, it, it's it's ludicrous. I mean, this makes no sense. Uh, but again, it, it, you're getting into this is about the politics of it, which is what you led off with. Mm -hmm. uh, but this this desire for Iran, 
you know, getting back to maybe say a discussion about PNAC, the project for a new American century, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like that was the crown jewel, right? Was Iran. And why? Yeah. I mean, but it, then it goes back to this obsession about 1979. And it really is about as an empire, you cannot be offended the way the Iranians offended us, disrespected yeah. us. And they, as they did in 1979. Yeah. I mean, and that just, and even though that is 45 years ago, it still matters because right. that's what a lot of the senior folks cut their teeth on. When Joe Biden was on the Foreign Relations Committee, you know, he had been a senator for five years or so at that point, I guess, right? I mean, this stuff is just imbued in him. And of course, it just transfers down. You have, you know, this idea that these people are acolytes. And certainly that's the case. That's yep. the case. Um, yeah. And it is, uh, it's so ridiculous, especially when, you know, Ronald Reagan was able to do deals and sell Ayatollah, sell the Ayatollah missiles just a few years later, you know, in the game of real politics, you just work things out, whatever, no hard feelings and then figure it out. You know what I mean? What are you going to do? Stay enemies forever? You don't have to. It's just a choice. But the problem is they're just big enough, probably just big enough to maintain their independence. And America's just not going to be friends with any country that they can't completely dominate and control, you know? I guess they've kind of settled for influence in India. I don't think they totally pwn India. They're willing to deal with them, but only because they hate China more, right? Otherwise, well, we'd probably be picking a fight with the Indians just for being big enough to stay out from total American hegemony over their policy. I mean, are there any monarchies that are not on our payroll not that, that we I don't sell of. weapons to, right? Certainly I mean, we not like monarchies. East. We like yeah. monarchies, right? Yeah. We, we tend to like dictators. You know, it's, it's not very difficult. I've done this a number of times. Steven Semler, I don't know if you ever had Steven on your show. Mm -hmm. Steven's great. He, I'll send you his stuff. He, he, he does a lot of really good uh, data sets and graphs and things like that. Just put out something uh, yesterday about... Uh, you know, uh, our, our weapon sales last year, which totaled $238 billion. Yeah, I read just it. It's the biggest export. Yeah. yeah. Just as a point of reference, we export about $175 billion worth of agriculture products. Right. Just so mm -hmm. just to, we, and a we lot of that is imperial gun to their head, forcing them to buy American grain and they would rather have their own. Yeah. 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 But so if you if you take that list of who we sell weapons to, who we send cash to, who we train, you know, all that type of stuff, and you match it up with like an organization like what Freedom House says, you know, Freedom House, the the NGO that's, you know, basically it's, it's funded by the U.S. State Department, it, you know, and, and people like uh, Dick Cheney and Richard Pearl sit on their board of directors, you know what I mean? So this is not like some organization that Scott or I are sending uh, monthly $10 donations to. But um uh, you know, if you if you match up all the, the all the countries that we sell weapons to with the list of countries that Freedom House, again, uh, a, a State Department cutout, more or less, uh, you know, you find that three out of four of the countries that the United States sells that, that are monarchies, that are dictatorships, that are military regimes, autocracies, whatever, three out of four of those, the U.S. sells weapons to. Right. We, we supply weapons to 75 percent of the world's yeah. dictators, basically. Yeah. And then when you get into human rights stuff, it's even worse. All right. So there's 12 countries in the world that have the death penalty for LGBTQ people. You know how many of the U.S. sells weapons to? I'm going to say 12. <laughs> Close, 10. Yeah. Iran was the one outlier. Yeah. Up until a couple of years ago, it was 11 because we were selling weapons to the Afghan government. You I mean, in the I mean? 1980s, Jim Kirkpatrick, who was a legit neoconservative 
from the Social Democrats USA and who became Reagan's um, UN ambassador. She wrote this important article saying, look, we back authoritarians against the totalitarians. They lean right. That's good enough for us. This is the Cold War, damn it. And we're up against the Soviet communists. And you know what? The Soviet communists are just about as bad as they could be. So if you need an excuse, that was the best one that you're ever going to come up with. Right. But now that they're gone, let me check my watch here. They've been gone for 33 years now. Right. Now that they're gone, how can you justify this? For a little bit of oil or a little bit of Israel or whatever it is, we have to keep a military dictatorship in charge in Egypt, holding right. ridiculous Saddam Hussein-like elections where the winner gets 98% and whatever with... Yeah, and we don't get upset then when he gives gold, when they give gold bars to one of our senators, not just any senator, yeah. the, the, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. They he give the guy upset. gold bars, yeah, right? Exactly. You know, I mean, we don't get upset with it. I mean, the whole thing is so farcical. It, it, but then we get back to the point of, well, if it was just that, if it was just about scumbags like Menendez getting paid off to, you know, give out information about the U.S. Embassy in Cairo and to help. What was that whole deal about? Help sell uh, halal products or something like that you know i mean that was that if that was it okay we can laugh about it but the reality is is these policies uh, the result of our empire have mm-hmm. now gotten this position where we are facing this potentially really catastrophic war yeah. with iran and, and that's look, this a, whole and thing is about nothing. israel too look we yeah we said exactly we've said nothing about yeah. that we said nothing we've said nothing in this conversation right. yet about the genocide that's occurring well that's yeah. the whole thing of this right is the what started off this current round of fighting in iraq is america supporting israel bombing the hell out of gaza right. in retaliation the current round of fighting, of course, began on October the 7th when Hamas broke out uh, and killed a bunch of civilians, as I've seen with my own eyes, as well as a bunch of Israeli military guys. Um, and then, yes, also apparently, quite apparently and well reportedly, the Israeli government killed a lot of their own people as well. Right. I don't think anybody knows exact numbers. But anyway, um, that is what started this all off. And just in the larger sense of imperial power. And, you know, we're talking about um, uh, Field Marshal Fatah al-Sisi, the dictator of uh, Egypt there. Without the Soviet Union, and who knows? I mean, we've got nothing but Clintons and Bushes and Bidens and McCains running things over here. And they're all very evil and whatever. But without the Soviet Union messing around over there and without Israel and their needs... You would think that America could probably just deal with whoever's in charge in Egypt and it'd be fine. You know what I mean? Well, not, like I, Islamic I, Jihad is not going to take over the place. When the Muslim Brotherhood won the election, you know, they barely had any power for the short time that they were even in charge there. But it's really because of Israel that America must support the military dictatorship in Egypt, the kingdom in Jordan. And a big part of the rest of them around the region, too. Obviously, oil has a lot to do with it. But the incentive structures are very skewed in favor of this little Jewish state that doesn't even have any oil. And I know people make a really big deal about the gas field offshore Gaza, but I think it's a small deal and not a big one. Exactly. I don't think it's enough to, you know, uh, 
Uh, and, and and the Israelis own that anyway. Uh, they they own it more or less anyway. The Palestinians were going to put out oil rigs there and get the oil themselves. The Israelis were going to allow that. Come on. I mean, the Israelis were going to do whatever they wanted regardless. Right. And the field uh, goes all the way up to like Cyprus and off the coast yeah, of I mean, Lebanon and whatever. So it's all going to be think, shared by a multinational, whatever that Israel, of course, will dominate. The, the one thing I will say about Egypt, and I was reminded about this, and maybe I actually I probably didn't know it. And I can't remember who I, I I can't remember where who who wrote this, but you know uh, when Nasser was in power, there were no American military bases in the Middle East, right? And like that type of thing of like we have to have a dictator in charge, otherwise things aren't going to be so smooth for us. We can't have all these bases. One, there's the the idea of having vassals and, and them being pliant and cooperative, right? Helping our policies, particularly Israel Israel first policies. Uh, but then the other thing too is that, like, you know, how can we be an empire if we don't have these outposts? How are we going to export two hundred and forty billion dollars in weapons if we don't have foreign militaries that are eagerly going to buy them up? Right? How are we going to have 800 military bases in the world if there are Nasser's out there? Right? How do we have an empire with people who are going to oppose us? You know, and be popular because there are strong nationalist figures who are representing a history of you know resistance to occupation. Uh, you know, and so that's what the empire hates. Anything that's an affront to it. Right? And we get back to okay, why are they so obsessed with the Ron? Going back to that, it's an affront to the empire. How? Dare they do this? You know, they should know their place kind of thing, uh, you know, yeah. and, and and but here we are, you know, with wondering what's happening. Is it taking so long, so long to, to, for, the, for the United States to launch these attacks because we're getting our aerial refueling tankers in place because we've got to move the B-52s yeah, to Diego probably, Garcia right? or to yeah. what, wherever it is, right? I mean, like, is that the reason why it has been almost a week yet? You know, or are they just building, you know, I think it's probably that as opposed to we're building dramatic anticipation, you know, for the or, moment. Right? Hey, y'all, I got a new coffee sponsor, Mundo's Artisan Coffee at MundosArtisanCoffee.com. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like my brain is all dried out. I need to pour a hot mug of rich, tasty coffee all over it to get it back working again, like 10W30 for the noggin. Though not necessary, it helps if the coffee tastes good. Well, Mundo's Artisan Coffee does taste good. They get the best beans from all around the world, and they don't burn them. Support the show and support your brain at MundosArtisanCoffee.com. Just click the link in the right margin at ScottHorton.org. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them. But the show does earn a kickback every time you get a bug assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War One, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War Two, Libya, Syria, Yemen... All of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. I mean, I think you got to ask, how dug in is Khatib Hezbollah? Like, do they not just go home? 
These are militia fighters who are like, yeah. you know, semi-professional adjuncts of the Iraqi army. Uh, who says they're going to wade around with a giant red target on their head, you know, bomb me? Well, it, it, and, and that's a good point, because where does where does the Iraqi army end and where does Katiba Hezbollah begin? Yeah. I don't think we know. And they're not right? going to bomb the Iraqi army, are they? <laughs> get to talk yeah. about a, a final break with their policy of 2003 through today. The, uh, uh, you know, the, the thoughts, too, is that people have to remember about these groups that we're talking about in Iraq and Syria is they're very competent. They're very experienced. Again, these were the guys that the for some reason. Long, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like they are. I mean, so like the threat to these American bases is real. Yeah. You know, Balad Air Base or Al-Assad Air Base could get overrun, you know, and certainly all those small bases in Syria. We've got. I don't know, like a dozen bases in Syria or something yeah. like that. You know, all these small little things. None of us had heard of Tower 22 before, uh, you know, before, you know, a week yeah. ago. I mean, so all these small little bases, uh, you know, again, that were relying upon American air power. Speaking for defense, of Jordan, then, I mean, why do we have to always assume that it's only ever going to be the Shiites who are intervening on the side of the Palestinians here when we know that 100 percent right. of popular opinion in every single one of these countries is on the side of the Palestinians here? That's and that, that was a, yep. That, if, that was my net. That was my point. Exactly. Oh, oh man, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. If they could reach oh, no, out no, and no, touch no, our good. guys you're in good. Jordan, why can't they reach out and touch the king of Jordan? You know, I mean, the idea of exactly that, of why. <clears throat> First of all, the other thing that provides security for these small bases is local security. So we've cut deals with the locals who are in charge. You've got local Iraqi army units, uh, you know, that kind of thing as well. And That's how three of our Rangers got shot in the back training Al Qaeda there back in 2016. That's exactly right. I mean, so, you know, if you're if you the, those the, those local groups there, those local power centers, they may very well real say to themselves you know what america's time here is up you know this this is the end one for on a moral level on a you know metaphysical level uh, on a on a level of you know where is my alliance lay it is with the palestinian people my uncle and my aunt and my cousins were all killed by an american bomb back in 2007 you know, I mean, like all this type of stuff swirls together as well as into maybe just the hard, cold realities that are put in front of them, whether that's cash, whether it's going to be, hey, there's going to be uh, 1500 PMF troops here tomorrow. Uh, right. You know, maybe, you know, all that. OK, you know what? We're not going to defend the Americans tomorrow. Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing could very easily happen. All right. So. That's a good place to change the subject to one last subject here. Because, you know, I have, have a very thorough imagination of how bad this could get if it really just becomes like the Ayatollah announces all bets off. If you believe in God, it's time to stand up to the Americans. Holy crap. Like we saw what happened in 04 when the Ayatollah Sistani said that in Iraq. He said, I want every Shiite. He said, I want anybody who believes in Allah. Go outside, tell Bush you want one man, one vote. And then they did, and they got their one man, one vote. They own the Constitution. They own the whole government ever since that day. You know what I mean? That, like, yeah. that was it. The Ayatollah does that. Either Ayatollah does that and calls all Shiites to arms in the region. I could see how absolutely freaking out of control that that could get. Like, well, I mean, I God would, I would knows say what all. But I want to go the other way with it, which is, nah, they get away with this tit-for-tat BS. 
look, we know you didn't do the sarin hoax. That was Al-Qaeda, but we're going to pretend to believe it and bomb you for an afternoon, and you're going to take it and not do anything, and we're going to... Because nobody really wants to tangle with America. That's a pretty big bully. He says he just wants to punch you one time. You know, I don't know. So that's how they want to play it. Let's say they get away with that. And let's say that really the worst that happens in this whole thing is still just what's happening in Gaza. That yeah. this America and their Shiite nuisance problem stays exactly what it is. Ultimately, we don't go to Tehran. We don't go to Baghdad. Nobody's going back to Baghdad. Uh, only by air. Uh, but even then, maybe not, you know, to such a degree. So, I'm looking more, or I wonder how you see the the long-term consequence i guess we still don't know the extent of the like permanent cleansing of gaza who's going to be allowed to come home and to what end and with what reconstruction and all these things that are whether they're going to be completely cleansed out of there or what but i just keep thinking that man it's levels of violence so much lower than this and so much less well publicized than this is what caused our al-qaeda problem before I mean, right. it was Bill Clinton bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi, as we mentioned, like with the Kobar tower attack there. But it was also American support for Israel and Palestine and Lebanon in the 90s, which helped right. turn this whole Islamic Jihad, uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Azam group project thing into an anti-American thing. Right. I mean, didn't, I mean, one of the hijackers, 9-11 hijackers, didn't have family that was killed by Israel and Lebanon, if I remember correctly. Or, well, you know, or I don't know that particular one, but I know that the main hijacker, Mohammed Atta, and his buddy Ramzi bin al-Shib, who helped coordinate the thing, but who couldn't get into the country, that they both were inspired by Shimon Peres's Operation Grapes of Wrath when he invaded Lebanon in, I think it was August of 96 or July 96. And... And then including the Kana massacre where 106 women and children were killed in a U.N. shelter. But they're doing yeah. that every day, killing 106 right. women and children in a U.N. shelter. Man, that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday during this whole thing. So, oh, and by the way, it was, it was Naftali Bennett, just trivia. It was Naftali Bennett that called in the strike on that shelter that made it into bin Laden's declaration of war against the Americans. And that was what inspired Mohammed Atta. I want to go join this Saudi Here's Egyptians. Yeah. I love saying this because it's so ironical and important to me. You got Egyptian engineering students studying in Hamburg, Germany, answer a call to arms by a renegade Saudi sheikh hiding in Afghanistan in order to avenge the Lebanese killed by Israel right. with American money. Right. And so the call to arms is to knock down our towers and kill our people for being involved in these atrocities that most Americans don't even know where Lebanon is at all. If you switch Lebanon and Israel on the map, they'd be like, whatever. You know, they don't know nothing about it, and yet they're held accountable because, of course, Bill Clinton was helping Israel do it, whether yeah. Americans knew that or not. Uh, the, 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 uh, and, and that's probably the, that's probably what I was thinking of. Probably, I probably have my my, my, my my thought that I said this before about the hijackers. No problem. And people can find that in The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright and in Perfect yeah. Soldiers by Terry McDermott. Yeah. Uh, but your your point, though, Scott, about what comes from this, you know, and maybe one of the, you know, one of the reasons why we may be seeing this delay besides practical reasons, you know, of like we've got to get the planes and everybody in position to bomb Iran is maybe there are and sit in the White House hoping that the ceasefire deal comes through. 
right? And so we've heard today about the possibility of this, this deal being presented to Hamas and it'd be 40-day ceasefire, there'd be three phases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, maybe that's the hope is that we need to decouple this because you're absolutely right. It, what you said earlier about this is a call to arms. And we've seen this. And this could, could this be, if you want it, we start getting our imaginations. Could this be the call to the arms? Could, you know, I, I think could this, uh, not just for the Shia or the Sunni, but could, uh, and I think Erdogan uh, is a great example of this. You know, you hear him talk, you see how he postured himself. You're telling me he doesn't want to be the next Saladin? Right. I mean, like, I mean, is that the, is that the competition that's going to occur among uh, Erdogan, uh, you know, the Ayatollah, uh, MBS, who's going to be the next Saladin? Uh, you know, what I mean, so like we, we can we can go down all kinds of pathways here that may seem very fanciful. But you know what? Uh, you know, it's not that much of a stretch. It's not that much of a leap to see how uh, how many years we to go back. So we saw United Arab armies fighting against Israel, right? Yeah. I mean, like the precedent is there and in and, and U.S. policy for my entire life. The last time was 73. So, right. So I was born in 73. The U.S. policy for my entire life has been to prevent that from happening again. Right. To, to prevent that type of unity mm-hmm. among the Muslims against the Israelis. And, and so, yeah, the dangers of all this. But 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 the more acute thing you're saying about what comes from this genocide? You know, what, what what's going to be the consequences? Whether it's stuff that we can very easily predict and, and, and say, okay, yeah, who wouldn't want revenge? Why is there not going to be revenge for this? Uh, you know, any one of us who was attacked and brutalized, murdered, humiliated in this manner, wouldn't we have some type of desire for revenge? Isn't this the basis of so many? We've got a whole uh, people aren't, uh, familiar with the whole notion of the myth of redemptive violence. Yeah. Hey, you just know, look I at think... how we acted over September 11th. One really damned bad attack on right. one day. We killed right. our government got four million people killed. Probably directly killed half a million or more in that, and right. got four right. million I mean, killed. So you have turn the have world the, upside the, down. Yeah. Uh, hey, you gotta go. You gotta go if you're if you if you grew up in the pop culture we grew up on, Scott. You gotta go out and avenge Alderaan. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, like you got to go blow up the Death Star. I mean, wow, you're never going to end this problem unless you stamp it out, unless you destroy it, you know, let alone all the. Uh, you Which know, is you exactly really gonna... what the Americans say. They only understand one thing, force. And that's exactly right. what they say about us, too. And that's a danger. You know? That's the danger, let alone the emotional aspect of it. Of like, if, who am I? If I don't avenge, if I don't do something about what happened, who am I? I'm going to live my life this way the rest of my life. You know, not having stood up for my entire family was slaughtered. or And, and it's just not just the, the Palestinians. You're seeing this sentiment. Yeah. You know, of course, everything the Yemenis, the Ansar Allah, the yeah. Houthis are doing right now. And look how popular they are. You know, I, I don't know how they, they, they are in control of, what, 70 percent of the population of Yemen before all this. And, and uh, you know, they weren't the most popular political group there in Yemen. They are now. Certain, exactly. Yeah. And not just in Yemen, yeah. throughout the region. There are, there, are, there are people down in Chile and people in, in, in Thailand and people yeah. in Angola who are cheering uh, Ansar Allah, the right. Houthis on, yeah. right? I mean, like, because they're standing up for this. Yeah. They're standing up against and the, the Al-Islam party, the, genocide. Yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood Party, which is a right-wing Sunni party in the country who they've been fighting this whole time. Al-Islam has been backed by Saudi. It's like the one Muslim Brotherhood group that the Saudis like for whatever reason. 
and the UAE doesn't like them, but the Saudis do. And the Houthis have been fighting them for this whole nine-year war. And then now Al-Islam is like three cheers for the Houthis and rallying around them. So war is the health of the state for the Houthis over there, getting involved, yeah. which is another problem, right? They have their own domestic political reasons for ratcheting up tensions for everyone in the region for their That's own exactly benefit. Right. That's and, exactly you know, right. You know, I mean, the... the, the, the and the, I'm, the, I'm sorry, dude, I, I have to stop you because I'm looking at the time and I'm in a panic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to yeah, get no. interviewed in yeah. one minute here. I could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. You're the best, dude. I, I love talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, Scott. Hey, man, you thanks for what you're doing. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Hell yeah. See you, man. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.